You know, in our series on Ezekiel, we're looking at visual aids that God uses to describe his relationship with us. And one of the ones we just sang about is exactly that, the idea of the temple, the inner courts and the outer courts, and the idea of marriage. Now, we're in a covenant relationship with God. And we see that in Ezekiel today because God is going to use the metaphor of a mark to describe, to woo, to challenge us at what kind of mark that we, uh, we hold and what kind of mark is on our life. Have you ever met somebody or seen somebody who had a mark of the feast? No? Oh, I bet you have, because every time you have a one-year-old party for your son or your grandson, your granddaughter, there's the mark of the feast right there, where there is a mark upon them that they have feasted on their, well, let me tell you, this one's a small mark. This is a big mark of the feast. Look at that. That is a mark of somebody who has celebrated, that has been cheered, that has been marked by a great celebration in the family. But it's not just babies. You can also see the mark of a feast uh, at a wedding. Right? There's always that moment where they cut the cake and they smear a mark of it all over their husbands or all over their wives. And usually at this moment, you can find out whether or not the marriage is going to make it. This one looks like they're going to make it. Uh, this one doesn't look so much like maybe the, the mm, not sure if honeymoon's not going to be too great here that, that's not a great mark of the feast this idea of the mark is going to be used in ezekiel chapter 8 and 9 to describe what mark we bear and each one of us bears one of two marks either the mark of the feast or the mark of the beast both of which are going to be alluded to in this passage today See, in 1994, people from all over the Midwest gathered together in this little bitty town in Manchester, Michigan. And as they gathered there, a 21-year-old and a 23-year-old came together and dedicated their lives before family and friends together. And afterwards, they went downstairs, had a potluck-style reception. And at the end of that time, they took chocolate-covered strawberries and ate them, and a great wedding cake was eaten. And 23 years later, I still wear the mark of that feast. This is not my wedding vows. This is not my marriage, but it's a mark of that commitment. It's a mark of those vows, and it's a mark of that relationship. And God is going to use that idea to describe the mark of a great wedding feast in the book of Revelation and the relationship that he wants to have with Israel, that they have been marked as his bride, as his faithful bride that he wants to be in relationship with. In the same way I'm marked with my marriage to my wife, he wants us to know that we are marked with the feast, the great wedding feast of being in a relationship with him. So we're going to look at two marks today, and, and the reason I'm excited about sharing this with you is because it's a pretty convicting message. It's going to ask us to look deep into the caverns of our heart and find out, though we may on the outside call ourselves Christians, and we are, and we're going to go to heaven, but are there caverns and captivities in our hearts when maybe something else is really in control, that we've marked areas of our life with something else. We'll begin in chapter 8, looking at the mark of the beast, actually, to examine who you worship in your inner court. See, it came to pass in the sixth year, in the sixth month, and on the fifth day of the month that I sat in my house with the elders of Judah sitting before me. And immediately was struck with the number, six, six, five. This is the day before 666. It's the day before judgment is going to come upon the people. It's the day before God is going to bring about swift judgment for all the idolatry. 
The number 666 is used two times in the Old Testament, and where many of us have heard it in very spooky ways in Revelation. In the Old Testament, it's always used to describe idolatry. What is it in your heart that you have identified yourself with besides God? There's an example in, uh, I think it's in 1 Kings, where Solomon begins to accumulate money and his heart is turned away from God and guess how many pieces of silver and gold he accumulates? 666. I would have just at least got one more or one less, right? And here, the mark of the beast, and we'll see the beast show up here in just a little bit, is this marking and numbers in the Bible are almost always symbolic of something. And here, at, at day 665, the day before God brings judgment, he's going to give one more opportunity for mercy. Now, remember, Ezekiel is in Babylon. He's been carried off to Babylonian captivity. And Israel, there's still a few people back in Israel... And he has heard, Ezekiel has from God, that what's going on there is incredibly... It was bad when Nebuchadnezzar came through the first time. Ezekiel, you're not going to believe what's going on this time. So God is going to, in a vision, give him an opportunity to see what's going on back there and why the judgment he's bringing is just, is firm, and is coming swiftly. So, the hand of the Lord fell upon me there. Where's there? There in Babylon. Then I looked, and there was a likeness. Now, this is not the angels. We already described the angels. This is a likeness in the midst of the angels. And it was like the appearance of fire, only in the middle of the fire, it's actually a man. From the appearance of his waist and downward, it was fire. From his waist and upward, it was like the appearance of brightness, like the color of amber. And here in the midst of the fiery vision of God and the angelic cherubim, is a man glowing amongst them. Who is this man? Why is he appearing in the midst of this? Who might he be? It's Jesus. we got to figure out who this is and why he's here in this story the day before, day 666. The passage continues. It says, And he, this fiery man from God, stretched out the form of a hand, and he took me by a lock of my hair. One lock of my hair. He lifted me up between heaven and earth, and he brought me, in his all vision, in a vision of God, to Jerusalem, to the door gate of the inner court. And he sets me down. He says, this court looks beautiful. Solomon built this thing. It looks gorgeous from the outside. It looks like it's all together, all in line with me. But we're going to dig into the inner sanctuary and find out what really marks their true allegiance behind the doors and into the inner sanctum. Now, where is he at? This is my best case guess. I have spent hours trying to figure out where he is, and so I've created a kind of cool little cartoon to figure out where he's at. He's at the north gate of the inner court. So here's my best case. There there he is. There's Ezekiel. He has been dropped off in the inner court. Here's the outer court. Here's the inner court. Here's the holy place. And here's the holy of holies inside here. So he's been dropped off at the inner court and at the north gates. He's coming from this direction. Now, this is unusual because if you were going to enter the court, you would come through the main doors here. He's actually coming through the gate that the animals were brought through for sacrifice. And God is saying, we're going to go through the sacrifice gate of the temple, and I want you to see what kind of things my people are sacrificing to. I think the challenge for you and I is the same. We might call ourselves Christians. We might say we love God with all of our heart. But what do we really sacrifice 
our time, our money, our will, and our desires too. That's how we find out what we're really marked with, what we sacrifice to. So as he goes in through the north gate, the passage continues. And God's going to say, I want you to see what my people have set up in my temple. As he comes in through the north gate, he sees on the seat, and that's the sacrificial seat, he sees the image of jealousy, which provokes God to jealousy. He mentions it again. And behold, the glory of God of Israel is still there. God is still in the building. God has not left yet. God is still there, and they are sacrificing to someone else, something else, right in the midst of the holy place. And he said to me, Son of man, Lift your eyes now toward the north. And I I lifted my eyes toward the north. And there, north of the altar gate, was the image of jealousy in the entrance. Now keep in mind, when God designed the temple, it was to be a sacred place where he and his people could be intimate with their sins, be intimate in their relationship. They could share with one another. They could talk with one another. In the metaphor of of the wedding feast, that the temple was almost like a home that God had built for his people to dwell in. In fact, they often refer to it as the house. More than that, the Holy of Holies is almost like the bedroom chamber. It was the most intimate place you got with God. And God is saying, as we walk into the intimate place in the temple, you're going to find out that though I am still here, my bride has taken another lover. And they don't, they don't even care. And I feel jealous, not jealous like I'm insecure jealous, but jealous like, no, no, that's my husband. No, that's my wife. Those are my affections. Those belong to us. Don't share those with other people. God is jealous because they've set up an image of a beast right in the inner chamber that they are bowing down to. And God's still watching on and they don't even care. The passage continues. It seems like Ezekiel now is coming through the gate and he's now facing the north. As he faces the north here, he sees this statue of this beast. And whatever this thing is, we go, oh, thank goodness I'm not like those people. Can you imagine how hostile they are toward God? Thank goodness I would never do that kind of thing. And yet when you dig into the inner chambers of your heart and ask, where do you find your sense of security? When you're feeling bad, where do you go for comfort? Often the image we put in our hearts, the thing we really go to for security, for identity, to, to, to soothe ourselves when things aren't going well, that's our image. That's our beast. For some of us, it's our fame. It's our reputation. Others of us, on the outside, we call ourselves Christian. What's really set up in the inner chamber of our heart is our career. We really live for our career. We live for our family. We live for our kids' obedience. We live for our popularity. We live for other people's approval. So before we demonize those people to set up a jealousy, just know for God, anything we set up in our life that prioritizes him over him, he considers an image of jealousy because he's jealous for our affection. He's jealous to be number one in our life. He doesn't want to be two. He doesn't want to be three. He doesn't want to be ten because he wants you and sees you and I as number one in his life. And that's why God's heart is so broken here in this passage, because he cannot believe that right in the bedroom chamber of God, they have set up an image of another man or another woman that they're bowing down to. The passage continues. He says, furthermore, he said to me, son of man, do you see what they're doing? The great abominations that the house of Israel commits here. 
to make me go farther away from my own sanctuary. I've been kicked out of my own house. I've been kicked out of my own place. I've been kicked out of my own bedroom. Now turn again. You'll see this phrase occur over and over again. Turn again. Let's turn and look. Because things will get worse. You're going to see greater abominations than this. So he brought me to the door of the court. And when I looked, there was a hole in the wall. And he said to me, son of man, dig into the wall. And I began to dig into the wall. And there in the midst of the wall, I found a door. So I'll show you where he is in just a second. So he's come into the inner courts. He now sees this, this hole. God tells him to start digging in. We're going to go even deeper into the inner caverns, into the innermost place of the heart of the temple, and find out exactly what marks their allegiance, what marks their faithfulness, what marks their motivations. He says, and it's going to get far worse than you've even seen so far. He said to me, go in, go in through the door, see the wicked abominations that they're doing in there. I went in and I saw, and there were every sort of creeping thing there, abominable beasts, there's marks of a beast right there in the holy place, and all the idols, and see the connection here to idolatry? All the idols of the house of Israel portrayed all around the walls, and there stood before them in the middle of this idolatry were the 70 men set up as priests to lead people spiritually in the house of Israel. And each man was going about the regular business of worship with a censer in their hand and a thick cloud of incense went up. We're now in the inner sanctuary where there would be a table of shorebread here on this side to remind them how during the honeymoon period of their relationship with God, when he brought them out of Egypt, he provided manna for them. And the showbread was designed to remind them of their honeymoon. There was also the great candle opera, the menorah, Seven candlesticks to remind them of the seven feasts that all pointed to God's love for them. The fire that came off the candles to remind them how during that honeymoon period, God led them in a pillar of fire. The smoke that came off the candle was to remind them of the pillar of smoke and the pillar of cloud he used to lead them and guide them during those early years of their romance. And in the midst of these constant reminders God put in place to their love relationship, the people have hung pictures on the wall of other gods. And God's heart is broken. It would be like today, you walk home, you come into your bedroom, and your wife has put up pictures all over the wall of all of her old boyfriends on your bedroom wall. Or worse, you come home and your husband has put up pictures of all his current girlfriends on the wall. It would be such a shocking level of disrespect, such a shocking level of, of betrayal, such a mark, not of a, of a feast, a great wedding feast, but a mark of a beast, something in your life you've made more important than God. That's what's hanging in your wall in the most inner chamber. And here's where Ezekiel seems to be. He goes in through a hole here. He goes into the court, and as he comes into the court, the showbread would have been here. Behind them would have been the, uh, the uh, candles I spoke of earlier. And they have set up all of these beasts, 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 pictures of all these abominable beasts. And now we are getting closer and closer to the holiest of holy places where the ark resides. We are this close to the Ark of the Covenant and they are worshiping other gods and doing it in a way that is just flamboyant and just unrepentant. And God is going to ask the question, who is their lover? Because it certainly is not me. My people are not loving me with all of their heart and all of their mind. Son of man, have you seen? Have you seen what the children of the, of the house of Israel are doing in the dark? Have you seen it? Every man is in a room with his own idols. 
And while they're in this secret place, in this dark place, they're saying, you know what? God doesn't care. God doesn't see. And God doesn't know about it. And I think the challenge for us is often as a Christian, we let God into the living room of our life. We let God into the kitchen of our life. But we say, God, stay out of the laundry room. Stay out of that closet. God, don't go in here. And that room is filled with a secret. That room is filled with an idol. That room is filled with shame and guilt. And God is saying, no, no, I I want all of you. I want every room. I want every crevice. I want, if you come to my house, look, I have your painting. I have your picture on the wall on every room. And I want my picture on every room of your house. Even the dark ones that are filled with shame and guilt and secrecy, let's open that door. Let's let some light in. Let's get some of that out. And let me help you work through this. Because it's day 665, and you've got the mark of the beast all over you. And I'm giving you one more opportunity to, to come clean that you've been betraying me. To come clean that you've unprioritized me. To come clean that you've not been faithful to me. Every man in a room full of idols... And they say, well, it doesn't matter. The Lord doesn't see us. The Lord has forsaken this land. And one of the idols is the idol, he'll mention here in just a second, of this god Tammuz. She was the resurrection of the crops, she was known as. And so they actually set up an idol for Tammuz. And they were praying to Tammuz for their crops, praying to Tammuz for their career, praying to Tammuz to provide what they needed. Here's how they did it, because Ezekiel sees it next. He said to me, turn again, there's that phrase again, turn again, and you will see greater abominations than this, Ezekiel. It just keeps getting worse. Greater abominations they are doing. He brought me to the door of the north gate of the Lord's house, and to my dismay, women were sitting there weeping for Tammuz. He said, have you seen this, O son of man? Turn again and you will see greater abominations than these. Tammuz was a fertility god, so engaging in worship of Tammuz almost always involves some kind of sexual practice or orgy-like um, experience, and it's happening right here in the temple of God, where you would engage in sexual intercourse with the priests of Tammuz in such a way that as you did that, you're hoping she was going to engage in the fertility with the land and bring rain at the same way, she was the one that could resurrect the crops that had died in the fall. So you were trusting Tammuz to be your lover. You were trusting Tammuz to be your resurrection. And God is saying, oh my goodness, I wanted to be your lover. I wanted to be your friend. I wanted to be your God. I wanted to be your resurrection. I gave you a whole festival called First Fruits to describe how I would bring the fruit out of the land, that I would be your provider. Remember the manna. Remember the water. Remember our honeymoon. A friend of mine several years ago he started a business. Things were going you know, relatively well in the first couple months or, or year. And then things got a little tough. You know, They really had to double down on the work, double down on the time they needed to invest. And, and no matter how hard they seemed to work, the, the expenses continued to go up and the income could never quite catch up. And after a couple of years where they really, he and his business partner, having conversations, what are we going to do? What strategies can we put together in this? My friend decided to dig a little bit deeper into the books than he had before. And then he dove a little bit deeper into the books and he found that his best friend, his business partner, had been swindling and stealing from the company. 
And he had pretended like he was all part of the strategies, we've got to work on this, but behind the scenes he was swindling and siphoning off the company's resources. And he said, I've never felt so betrayed. That's how God's feeling right now. I had a friend of mine describe a time when he was engaged and he had plans to get married and, and they had planned a honeymoon and he decided to surprise his fiancée and he came over with some dinner one night unannounced and as he walked in the room, he, he found her with another man. He said, you know, some people might scream or throw things. My heart was just broken. This person I had dreamed of spending my life with and my future with instead was choosing another person. I cannot describe the feeling I had that day. That's the feeling God has right now. That his people would turn from him in this way. And he gives one more analogy to describe how he feels or what it even looks like from his perspective that his people have taken the mark of the beast. He asks him another question. Who's their lover? Who's their resurrection? Where do you turn when things get bad? That tells you you're real God. So he brought me to the inner court of the Lord's house, and there at the door of the temple of the Lord, so we're here at the door, between the porch, the porch was this area where the pillars are, it's called the portico, it's all this portico, between the porch and the altar, here's the altar here, so right between these two sections, there were 25 men with their backs toward the temple of the Lord and their faces toward the east, and they were worshiping the sun toward the east. Now keep in mind, the temple's faced the east, so the sun is this direction, oops, the sun is this direction, So literally, the people, in order to worship the sun, have turned and they're facing the sun. They're worshiping the sun. And in doing so physically, metaphorically, they've literally turned their backs on the Ark of the Covenant, the very sign of God's presence. And God says, what they're doing physically, bowing down to the sun, calling out for for their crops, calling out for their strength, calling out for their life, What they turn to tells me who they've turned from. And in our lives, that's how we can figure out what our idol is. Trace your fears, trace your, in your high-pressured stress environments, who do you turn to? Because whatever you turn to that's not God, when you turn to that thing, you've got your back to God's presence. If you're not turning to God, you're turning away from God, and that's what's happening here. To which he pulls Ezekiel aside, and almost like two men weeping at a bar, the words he shares with Ezekiel are so real and so tender and so righteously angry when he says, Have you seen this? Are you seeing what I'm seeing, son of man? Is it a trivial thing? Am I blowing us out of proportion what the house of Judah has done here to commit these kind of abominations in my house, in my bedroom, in my place? They've committed it here. Here they've done it. Worse than that, they filled the whole land with violence, killing the unjust. They've returned to provoke me to anger. They returned here. Indeed, they put their branch to the nose. It's time. Therefore, I'm going to act in fury. My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. And though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, I will not hear them. At this point, we struggle with the Old Testament God. Why is he getting so upset? Why is he getting so mad? And I've tried to describe why he's justified and what he feels. 
But more than that, imagine those feelings I just described. Only God has waited now 390 years, almost 400 years. He's been patient. He's been compassionate. He's been kind. This is not a God who gets angry at the drop of a hat. He's waited twice the time frame of our country's existence for his people to turn back. And now, even at day 665, the day before judgment, he's giving one more chance for mercy, one more chance to turn back, one more chance to, to admit that what they've done. If you will do it, friends, if you will come back to me, you can switch from the mark of the beast to the mark of the feast, the great wedding feast I have planned for you. And we see that mark of the feast in chapter 9. Chapter 9 begins, he says, And then he called out in my hearing with a loud voice, saying, Let those who have charge over the city draw near, each with a deadly weapon in his hand, which seemed to be angelic warriors who were in charge of protecting this area. And he said, Each one of you. Suddenly six men came from the direction of the upper gate and faces north, each with a battle axe in his hand. And he said, The judgment is about to come down. Time is almost up. Judgment is almost upon you. But even in the midst of his anger, even in the midst of his hurt, even in the midst of judgment, he gives one more opportunity for for grace, one more opportunity for compassion, one more opportunity to turn back. And and all he looks for, he just this is the smallest sign of repentance. I just need you to sigh in my direction. That's it. Anyone who will just sigh in my direction, I'll rescue. Anyone who will just sigh, let alone cry, in my direction, I will give you a different mark. I will mark your forehead with the mark of the feast that, yes, you're my wife, and yes, I'm your husband. Yes, you're my people, and yes, I'm your God. So with the axe ready to fall and the six seemingly angelic warriors coming to bring about judgment with the battle axe, God calls one man among them who is clothed in linen, Now, who would this man be who's clothed in linen? It's Jesus. We've got to discover who this man is who would offer grace in the midst of judgments. And he's got a writer's inkhorn at his side. And they went in and they stood before the bronze altar. And the glory of of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub where it had been to the threshold of the temple. And he called to this man clothed in linen who had the writer's inkhorn at his side. And the Lord said to him, I want you to go through the midst of the city. Check every corner, every trace, down every alley. Go look for anywhere throughout all the midst, all the midst of the city, all the midst of Jerusalem. And I want you to go take your inkhorn, pull out the the feather, dip it in the inkhorn. And I want you to mark on the forehead of anyone who will just sigh or cry over the abominations that are done in Israel. And so this man, clothed in white, walks through town listening And he'll hear, what have we done? And he'll mark them, yes. Somebody who's trying to sigh in God's direction. And he'll walk down another alley. What have we done to our God? And he'll mark them on the forehead with the mark of God. And he'll go through another alley. And he'll walk through town listening. Please, just just sigh in God's direction. Just cry in God. Yes, yes, yes. Pulls out the inkhorn. Mark somebody else's forehead. You have the mark of the feast. You want to align yourself with the God of grace and compassion. You want to be rescued from the judgment to come. All they had to do was sigh or cry over the abominations that were being done 
in the place. And they would be marked and rescued from the judgment to come. Now, how many of you know the story of Irene Sandler? She died recently at 98. The year was 1939 in World War II. The Nazis had taken over Poland. It is said that they are killing 5,000 Jewish people per day. Irene Sandler was a young nurse who is a Christian. She saw the atrocities happening in her city. She got together with fellow nurses, and they, as a band of nurses, declared war on Hitler. (laughs) And they decided they needed to combat this evil force to save and mark those children who were destined for death to be rescued. And so she took her nurse outfit and she came to the gates of the barracks and she said, I'm here to check for diseases. You don't want diseases spreading, do you? And they let her in. As she wandered through the city and through the barracks, she would plead with mothers, 5,000 people are going to die again tomorrow. Let me rescue your son. Let me rescue your daughter. And these mothers had a terrible decision to make. Do I hold on to that which I love most? knowing that they'll probably die with me, or do I give it away to someone I don't know to save them and to mark them for rescue? Irene was incredibly creative and ingenious in the way she snuck the kids out. She would put them in potato sacks and walk them out, saying she was going to get food. She put a child in a toolbox and carried them out. She put several children in a coffin, nailed it shut, and brought the children out of the barracks in a coffin and rescued them. She marked down every child's name and the location of where she'd relocated them in case she ever found the parents that they could find them again. In order to hide that list from the Nazis, she buried it under a tree just outside their barracks. She was eventually found out, tortured, broke both of her legs, and said, you will tell us those names and you will tell us where those children went, and she refused to give in. When the Nazis were defeated, she made her way back to that tree where she buried those names day after day, week after week, year after year, and she found 2,500 children that she had rescued. She's known as the female Schindler, rescuing children from impending judgment. In one sense, Jesus is the same. He's coming into this situation, this man clothed in linen, saying, come on, judgment is coming. The day of 666 is tomorrow. Will you please let me mark you with my love, mark you with my conviction, mark you with my forgiveness. Please let me rescue you. In fact, as he finishes his tour of the city, he returns in verse 11. And this man in linen turns to God, the Lord who sent him out. And then the man clothed with linen, who had the inkhorn on his side, reported back and said, God, Father, I have done as you commanded me. In the Old Testament, this is called a theophany. It's an Old Testament appearance of Jesus Christ. Wandering through, looking for anyone who would sigh in God's direction. And the words echo into the New Testament. When Jesus turns to his disciples and say, I have done everything the Father told me to do. And these same words, I've done what you commanded me, can be heard on an old rugged cross as Jesus having nails pounded into his hands and pounded into his feet. And he looked to each one of us through history and says, there's impending judgment coming when God will judge you, not just for your wrongdoing, for all the ways you took something good in your life 
and turned into an altar, an idol. All the ways in which you made God a third priority, a fifth priority, a tenth priority, a hundredth priority. That's why I'm dying. You did not recognize him as your God. You did not recognize him as your lover and friend. You've minimized God in your life, and that's why I'm here. And if you would accept my grace, if you would accept my forgiveness, I will mark you. I have a a feather in one hand, and I have an inkhorn in the other. And you can hear the words of Ezekiel echoed in Jesus' words when he says, I have done everything you commanded me to do. It is finished. And God would say to us, do you want that gift of grace and mercy and forgiveness? I don't want to bring judgment, but I have to eventually, after 400 years, I've got to judge evil and betrayal. But one more opportunity, if you'll just sigh in my direction. If you call yourself a follower of Christ and you prayed a prayer like this 30 years ago, have you looked into the corners and crevices of your heart to ask yourself, whose mark do I really have on the wall in the inner chambers of my desires and motivations? Because I think that's the question all of us have. See, each one of us bears a mark. It's either the mark of the feast or the mark of the beast. And beasts in our life are rarely bad things. They're usually some good thing, family, popularity, career, money, some good thing we turned into an ultimate thing. So here's our key takeaway. I think we need to do what Ezekiel did. We need to dig into the walls of our hearts and check our mark. Why is it when I get stressed, I turn to this instead of prayer? Why is it when I'm under under severe pressure, I find myself steering in this direction and not that direction. And and however far you go into your heart, I want to encourage you to keep digging. Dig deeper and deeper into your heart and find out whose picture is on the wall, whose mark, whose photograph do you go to in your innermost place. Dig into the walls of your heart and check your mark. Check your God. Because all through the Bible, you find those who really were pursuing God passionately said, The one thing I want more than anything is my body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. If God lives here, then I want the deepest, most place in my heart. I want to be in His presence. I want the ark, the sign of His presence. It's better to have one day in your presence, have one moment in your presence, have one hour in your presence. I would rather have that than a thousand other things. There's a thousand other things in your life wanting God's attention, wanting to to be your, your number one thing. But when you begin to pursue God with absolute passion, you say, God... The number one thing is to have your presence over a thousand others. What do you turn to and whose mark is in the corners of your heart? Is it God's presence? Or is it some beast, some good thing you've turned into an ultimate thing? I always stand together. I want to hear to, to sing this last song together. And maybe this song is currently true and you want to say, yes, God, that's how I feel. Better is one day in your presence than a thousand other things. Or maybe you want this to be the prayer of your heart. God, I've got to get back to making you the number one priority of my life.